Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get By now, you've probably heard the term the tech clash, which was coined to explain the idea that while previously happily supported by the public, uh, the largest tech companies today, mainly Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon, are suddenly facing a widespread backlash. And this includes backlash from regulators and politicians, backlash from smaller tech firms, backlash from users, backlash from advertisers, and perhaps most notably, backlash from the media. Uh, there's obviously some truth to all of this, though much of it may be something of a self-fulfilling prophecy, the, uh, that once the media started talking about the tech clash, it became a reality rather than perhaps the other way around. Uh, my guest today, Dr. Nareet Weissblatt, is a former visiting research fellow at USC Annenberg Center for Public Relations and has written a book called Tech Lash, uh, with a focus on the PR media side of it and how tech companies went from uh, being the darlings of the industry to, at least according to the media, widely hated by just about everybody. Uh, I will note that I was among the many, many people that Narit interviewed. Uh, and so I am quoted somewhat extensively in the book, as are many, many others, uh, including people who have far more expertise on the nature of technology and media. Uh, but it's a, it's a good book, even even though I am quoted in it. So, uh, Narit, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so there are obviously many ways to talk about the tech industry and the media that, that covers it, but what made you decide to focus on the tech lash as sort of the centerpiece of your narrative? It wasn't my initial research proposal when I pitched USC, actually. That wasn't the idea. The idea was to research the non-investigative nature of the coverage and mm. the influence of corporate PR and how promotive is the narrative. And actually, the idea was to criticize the tech media for not being tough enough. But that was before the tech clash. <laughs> 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 and then the world changed and then... You know, like any good startup, I needed to pivot. So I changed my <laughs> research altogether, uh, theory and methods, and dived in the tech clash. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting, right? Because that, that is some of the discussion that, that a lot of people have been having about tech and media is that for many years, you know, going on decades, it was it was all sort of, you know, glorious, nice coverage and, and you know, magazine covers exactly. and, you know, glossy photo shoots and these people are changing the world. And, and then that that change. So what, what, what did you find in terms of like, why did that change? How did that change? What happened? Uh, good. So actually my research goes back to early 2000s uh, when I done my um, PhD in communication. I studied the tech media and back then we were in what I call the product journalism or innovation journalism phase. Mm -hmm. Whereas you said it was the glorious days and I documented the rise of tech blogs and how it changed the tech coverage and of course 
the idea was that, as you said, we had the cult of personality, and all the tech CEOs and uh, founders are geniuses, and their <laughs> innovations are good for society, and everything is new is exciting. And I documented that. And on this basis, of course, I pitched the new research. Uh, but then uh, 2017 happened. And uh -huh. I'm a um, big data analytics kind of a girl. And i looking at the big tech companies and their um, yearly timeline. So I'm looking at the peaks of coverage, like the big stories that got the most number of articles and posts. And in regular, what I call pre-tech last year, uh, those peaks were mainly positive and product launches, so we have a new product, or business reporting like IPOs and M&As and things like that. But 2017, all of my <laughs> peaks of coverage in the data were negative. They were mm. tech scandals. And uh, so the data like forced me <laughs> to expand my analysis to what's going on, how did we get here, uh, like the roots of the change and also how the companies reacted. So then I added to all of the big data analytics the content analysis of how the media is covering this narrative and how the companies react. And on top of that, I've done all the interviews uh, with tech experts like yourself. Don't be modest. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and then I got like, the real inside story of the tech lash and how did we get here. And how did we get here is a great question because there's a short answer and there is this more long uh, explanation. The short answer is Donald Trump's victory in November 2016. So right about then, we had the media digging all the you know, widespread misinformation, disinformation, fake news phenomena, and of course blaming the tech platforms for the widespread. And we had the Brexit referendum before that, and it, there was this build-up. But I've been told again and again that I won't find a more pivotal moment than the post-presidential election reckoning in the tech industry mm. by both the tech journalists and the tech workers uh, figuring out uh, their influence and their power and how they may help that happen. And that's the short answer. <laughs> the longer explanation is that it's much more complicated than that. We had various issues at once, uh, like the accumulation of very different things that, uh, like Tom bombs that detonated at once, that formed this tech clash. And 2017 was this turning point, this year that uh, we had so many scandals on so many issues that it like, broke the camel's back and mm. made everybody be more critical of the tech industry. Um, and and who, who do you think is the sort of target audience for the book? Is it, is it for the media? Is it for people in tech, for, for everyone, for other people? What, what's, what's your... So, uh, great question. It's an academic book, but I've done my best to make it more simple uh, in a way that um, both tech journalists, tech PR professionals, and tech... Uh, workers in tech companies and tech geeks actually can read it and enjoy the story because I'm taking the reader through this journey from the 80s. We had the computer magazines and the glorious days there and I'm showing how the interplay between the major groups of the tech journalists and the tech giants, how that evolved. And it's actually an interesting story, not just for scholars. So the book is academic for researchers and students, but yeah, it's actually a good story for anyone who's interested in how the tech industry is being covered by the media because the story is the media's narrative 
to the Teclash. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I can confirm it's very it's a very readable book. So ah, don't uh, don't don't think of it as just because it's an academic book that it's somehow not uh, not readable. It's 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 enjoyable. Um, and, and again, like I feel like I have to put in an asterisk that I am quoted in it. So I, I feel weird saying that. <laughs> but um, there there are lots of really interesting interesting discussions and interesting quotes and really interesting perspectives because you know you know one of the you know the, the fact is right there is no single perspective of sure. of anyone or or even like you know the media and there are different you know different types of journalists and different types of media that cover things in different ways because that's that's the the nature of it it's just um you know following the the sort of overarching narrative and how these different pieces fit together which is what makes the book so interesting yeah what i try to do is to put all versions of the story Mm -hmm. like battling each other. So on the one side, I have like Kara Swisher, who, which of course the listeners know, yep. uh, like leading uh, the tech lash, and she had her things uh, to say in the book. But on the other side, I put people like Jeff Jarvis saying, moral panic. And right. <laughs> so I'm putting them one next to each other, like this uh, virtual panel where they're fighting and debating, <laughs> uh, which I, I hope make the book interesting. And like the book always moves from... The media is overcorrecting the past and uh, throwing the baby with the bathwater and went to, one, to the extreme. Uh, the pendulum swung too far in the negative direction versus the ones who say, the ones who say that don't understand journalism at all <laughs> because that's journalism role to hold power to account, speak truth to power, we're just doing our job and we have no patience for those uh, accusations because we're just doing great journalism here. So... Throughout the book, it's the fight. <laughs> right, right, yeah, which which continues to go on today, and it's it's always, you know, uh, it's always amusing to see people arguing over this. And like I get, and obviously I argue about this as well, and I have my my perspective on it. Um, but I, it's it's, uh, it's this constant back and forth, and and you know, I think as you sort of point out, like I think everybody has has some relevant and, and accurate points and you know obviously a lot of it's just sort of filtered through their own uh, perspective and their own place in it and and there is this sense of like you know there's the 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 quote that um, uh, I'm gonna butcher it this is why I shouldn't shouldn't suggest quotes right when I have to say them live but the idea that like you know we 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 look at you know our own actions based on our intentions and we view everybody else's actions based on the the sort of outcomes or or, or whatever i've butchered that quote but mm -hmm. you know it's you know everyone thinks that they're doing the right thing even if it it appears to others as if they have some sort of uh you know horrible agenda or whatever yeah um, and so so it, it makes it complicated but but also makes for an interesting story for 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 your book yeah, I think that because we have all the nuances in the book, uh, it seems to me because of the you know various viewpoints that both tech critics and advocates can find their like favorite quotes in the book, right? <laughs> <laughs> that they can right. turn and say, "You see." And, and <laughs> <so>. Yeah. <laughs> um, what 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 do you think is uh, kind of the most important things that you expect readers to get out of the book? Well, I've been through this journey myself writing the book that I was on the side. As again, me in academia were yelling at the 
tech media to be tougher and um, doing good journalism, which is investigative journalism. So I was on the side that celebrated the tech clash saying, oh, finally, (laughs) Uh, that's happening and uh, that's great journalism. But doing uh, all the content analysis for the book, and I went through thousands of articles, um, something shifted, I think, in my point of view, I may say. Um, And the pandemic, I think, writing the book in the pandemic, like, really uh, uh, made it stronger. Because, like, one occasion that I I think that really blew my mind was, oh, something that you're going to love, the evil list. Remember that? That was cover story in Slate magazine, January 2020. And the magazine asked, like, which two companies are really doing the most harm, right? Ranking uh-huh. the 30 most dangerous, harmful, evil companies in the world. And in there, uh, of course, Twitter and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Microsoft, everybody were, like, in the top ten. But the, right. the ranking was, um, like, number one evil company was Amazon. And, like, two months after this article, and while I was writing the book, millions of people relied on this number right. one evil company to deliver essentials along, you know, non-essentials to their front door during this, you know, shitty pandemic. So that was one thing. And the other thing is that uh, regarding Twitter, uh, they needed to specify, like, the reason why each company yeah. is so evil. So they chose, and you got to listen to that, is Jack Dorsey idea to decentralize Twitter. <laughs> and I was like... Yes. Yeah, that's an odd choice. I mean, tech experts like yourself believe the opposite, that the non-commercial open source, open standard federation of real-time protocols, like protocols, not platforms that our listeners know, (laughs) is actually good. You know, it's a solution. It's not the problem. It's maybe the fixer. And the article choosing that as like the reason Jack Dorsey is evil (laughs) was like, okay, so we can't have... a good conversation here if every suggestion is labeled as evil so right. we have yeah. a problem with the discussion if it, we can have even that yeah no i i think i think that uh, that was great and i very much remember that because i was like wait this one example of where he's actually trying to like bring twitter to to a a you know, less evil state and giving more control to the end users. That is the the key example of why they're evil. And they described it as that he was trying to like, you know, absolve himself of responsibility. And I was yeah. like, no, that's like, that's not what he's doing. He's, he's recognizing that they shouldn't have as much power and trying to, to go back on him. But it, it is funny. And it actually, you know, that description reminds me of like, you know, I don't know if you followed in, in the last few weeks, like the debate over, um, Facebook and, and Australia, sure. uh, and 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 the news law and and the news bargaining code is the official thing. Mm-hmm. I, I keep referring to it as a link tax because that's what I think it is. But then Australians get mad at me, sure. um, <laughs> saying it's not it's not a tax. But the the thing that's amazing to me is that like no matter what you do, yeah, no win. There's no win here. People are going to describe it as bad because like on the same day that we had. Facebook decided that it was no longer going to link to news in Australia, which they since went back on. You had Google caving in and agreeing to to uh, a deal to pay News Corp a bunch of money. And so people were yelling at Google for, for funding Rupert Murdoch. Uh, and then, you know, an hour later, those very same people were yelling at Facebook for doing the opposite and saying, like, well, we're just not going to link to news. So we don't have to pay Rupert Murdoch. And it's like, no matter what decision you make, it's going to go through the, the, the lens of this must be evil, right? Damn <laughs> that, if you that, do and damn if you don't. 
Exactly. And so that's, that's been my issue with a lot of the tech clash is that everything is viewed through this lens of they must be doing it for evil purposes, even if it's completely, you know, the opposite of what other, the other companies are doing. Yeah, but that brings us to their uh, crisis communication, which I analyzed uh, in depth. So what I've done is I looked at all their big scandals and how they reacted, their responses. So it's their press releases and, you know, spokesperson statements to journalists. And the interesting thing is that I had, like, you know, different crises and variety of companies, and yet the PR responses were very much alike. Like, they all used the same playbook. <laughs> And I created, in the book, I call it the tech PR template for crisis. <laughs> so they roll it again and again and again. And actually, uh, it backlashed as well because they basically tried to reduce their responsibility in those crisis responses, which is what crisis uh, communication like, you know, does. Like the one-on-one, right. -on -one, how do you supposed to do it? So they've done what they are, uh, you know, their consultant tell them to do. Uh, we've built something good. We had good intentions. We had previous good deeds. You know, we had great policies. So they put all the right. information that they have to write. And then there's this victim-villain framing that our product was manipulated, misused by bad, malicious actors. And that makes sense. But when you look at the literature, it's scapegoating, you know, blaming others. It's victimization. Mm -hmm. We are a victim of the crisis. And those are things... When it happened once or twice, you can use it. But when it happens, you know, 10 times a week, <laughs> that's like a different story, right? So the media received those messages and then like said, okay, this is BS. We can't like receive those messages again and again and again. And of course, we had also their apology tours, right? But I'm, yeah. I I'm calling them in the book pseudo-apologies. Right. And again, looking at the literature, so many responses said, we apologize, deeply regret, ask for forgiveness. But they were intertwined with all the other elements that I identified, right? That reduced the responsibility, all the excuses and victimization and scapegoating. Uh, so if you're so suffering as an unfair victim, uh, you're asking for forgiveness is, is you know, not real. <laughs> um, right. And then they... You know, their messages were just repeating themselves. I, it's, I, I just, you need to read the book to see it. It's just amazing. <laughs> I, I'm documented the copy-paste here, right? So one sentence is, uh, we need to do better. <laughs> right. right? You know it. All, I mean, tech reporters listening heard it like this combination like a million times by now. While we've made steady progress, we have much more work to do. And we know we need to do better. It's like the ending of every press release through you know, the past four years, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so just putting it out there as we know that you're repeating the same message again and again, uh, it's something that you know, I looked for, you know, hoped doing in this book, just showing the template. Um, so also when they were like really proactive, saying those are the steps we are doing to fix this and looking forward, those are the steps for improvement, you know, minimizing the chances that it will happen again. Again, something that you have to do in crisis communication. Also that backlash because all the critics says it's not enough and mm -hmm. you're, um, you know, ignore the system. And uh, it was just this never-ending cycle of criticism, no matter what they uh, put out there as a response. Yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting. And... You know, there's there's a part of me that's like I don't know, and you to, right like you totally understand why the companies did this, but like, do you think that there is a a better approach that they that they could have taken that would have 
led to any other result uh, other than more criticism? Well, um, one thing that I think we should um, mention is sentence that you actually said in your interview that, well, of course it's their messaging because they're being asked to stop big, difficult societal problems. Mm-hmm. And that's in an impossible request. So on their side, uh, they maybe not, don't need to play the victim here, but just specify, explain, and educate the nuances, the complexity of the problems. Because people would appreciate this knowledge, but they are viewed as you know, black boxes, producing black boxes. We don't know anything about what's happened there inside. And then you know, it's easy to depict this as evil. But if you like, open up and say, those are the trade-offs of why we're doing what we're doing, and really mm-hmm. explain it, I think that would be very helpful for them. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I wish that the companies were better about that. But I also see, like, you know, they recognize, and as as you do, <laughs> I'm sure as well, that, that, you know, if you try to explain things that are deeply nuanced and, and involved, that at least some are going to take, like, one or two sentences completely out of context and just run with that, you know, as, as the story. Um, and And, like, you know, the example I remember was like um, when um, when Mark Zuckerberg first proposed the what is now the oversight board. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a there was a big article about how oh, like Facebook is trying to set up its own Supreme Court um, and and sort of like get around the justice system. Like it was designed. You know, th- there was an article I forget where it was that sort of acted as if it this was like an attempt to to um you know route around like mm-hmm. the 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 actual judicial system um whereas it was you know there there are lots of criticisms of the oversight board and I've made some of the criticisms of the oversight board but you know it was always a, an attempt to take away some of the um the power of of Facebook to itself to be sort of the final arbiter of certain content moderation decisions and yet people still painted that as as obviously, you know, of ill intent and 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 problematic, um, and so you know, people just will always take some element of a nuanced argument and turn it into the most negative version of that. And so I don't I, like I just I don't even see how you know I, I would love it for companies to be willing to talk about the trade offs more openly and transparently, um, but I can see why why the reality of how people will respond to that makes that really difficult as well. Yeah, I can relate. Um, the thing is that, you know, again, putting Kara Swisher as the spokesperson <laughs> for the tech class, she will tell you, uh, like all Spider-Man fans know, with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. So every time they try just a little bit in their you know, tech journalist minds to reduce their responsibility, of course you're going to get criticism for that. And and then you know PR can't fix it if it's those, right. you know if, if you're being asked to change your business model the fundamentals of your business and you take responsibility for everything and what everybody person like in the world is posting on your platform it, PR can't help it. Like, do Do you think that um, when the companies put out these responses, um, do you think that they are doing that mainly as a sort of crisis communications response? Or are there cases where they legitimately internally believe that they need to fix things and do better? Or is it some combination of the two? 
So I have several examples of uh, both. <laughs> I think <laughs> right. that a good example for how the system is working is Uber. Because 2017 uh -huh. has this, you know, this most scandalous year for Uber. And I had in my database several tech scandals a month to analyze in the data. So there was this peak, and I needed to specify which one of the 10 scandals this month is the one that caused this <laughs> peak, right? So in February, for example, we had Susan Fowler and her um, allegations about sexual harassment and discrimination. And it was like then snowballed to other things, and of course, uh, in Silicon Valley and the tech industry as a whole, and then it was before the Me Too movement, right? So there was this, uh, many issues that just started, and you know what? Uber fixed its culture. Uh, it's done a lot of work, fired people, changed the CEO, uh, and things have changed in the long run. They had long work there, we, need, we know we need to do better, and you know what? They've done better. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, though, you know, related to that is that I think that there are still a lot of people who, um, you know, don't, don't recognize that, right? And they, they still believe that the, the stories that came out in, in 2017 still represent the way that that company uh, is today. It's interesting how those, you know, those kinds of stories can stick to a company for a long time. And so, you know, sometimes I wonder about, about that. Like, how do you, not only how do you change, but how do you really get out the message that you've truly changed and that it's not just sort of like a, you know, a PR campaign? Yeah, but what Dara, uh, their new CEO, done well, Travis failed. Uh, Travis was portrayed as the douchebag. Like it, yes. it was pretty <laughs> certain that this guy created the culture, right? But you, you bring this more uh, adult, like responsible person who's, uh, who speaks about fixing things and actually fix them, you gain respect. Like the brand, the reputation actually, I think, improved. Yeah. yeah. You don't no. see delete Uber now, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean... I mean, uh, having gone nowhere in a year, so I haven't used <laughs> any sort of ride sharing uh, for a long time. But yeah, so who, who knows? We'll see what what happens when things when things open up again. Um, and then, I mean, on the on the media side, you know, do you think that there are are important lessons for journalists um, in the book as well? Sure. Um, so again, in the debate, the PR people will tell them how to do their job better, which is <laughs> consider if this scandal is a true scandal and uh, if the harm is real harm, if the concerns are real concerns. And um, maybe you're exaggerating. And when you're exaggerating, people can be, you know, tone deaf and just say, you know, it's wolf, 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 and I'm not listening. Right. So maybe narrow it down a bit. Um, and on the peer side, there's a lot of criticism of how the tech companies operate, right? So I think everybody can learn from what I'm documenting there. One yeah. of the things that I've been through uh, this process of writing the book is that I, the theme is pendulum swings, right? So I'm showing right. how throughout history we went from one extreme to the other. And like, um, what I got to realize is that we are drawn to those extremes. You know, but the reality is somewhere in the middle. Mm. But we don't get this middle ground, and we won't because we are in the extreme. Right. Uh, so I think that my last paragraph in the book is just hoping for future middle ground. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's, that's 
great. Because um, I said, you see throughout history, and I'm, again, going through all, you know, rise of computer magazine, right? And the cult of personality right. and have all those geniuses and Mark Anderson as the golden geek on the cover, <laughs> on the throne, right? So we had yep. that. They were God, right? And now we don't want them on the throne. We don't want them to decide anything. Um, and neither is accurate, you know? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, um, you know, now there's been like, uh, at least within the, the tech world, there's sort of been this, this backlash um, in the other way. Like, so, so now a bunch of the, the tech folks have been really angry at the, at the media because they feel that the coverage is unfair. And even like, you know, I've seen a few articles now about, it's funny because you mentioned like Mark Andreessen on the cover sitting on the throne, yes. which is, that was that, that was Business Week, was it? The or time, was it? time, time. I time, time. I knew it was mm-hmm. one of those, mm-hmm. um, all those, the, the, flashy covers uh and and now there have been a couple articles about how he's building uh, his own yeah yeah well and and also (laughs) like blocking journalists where he's been you know uh, on on twitter and clubhouse which is is his new sort of you know social media refuge uh he's been he's been blocking journalists and you're like well you know journalists built him up and then now he's he's upset that 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 they've been pushing back and so he's blocking them which is you know he's he's is right to do but i i find it just interesting to see that contrast between you know one end and the other and how like the tech world it itself feels about media coverage and how you know there was this period where they sort of expected to be held up as as these great innovators um and then and now are upset when when the coverage when the as you said sort of the pendulum swings um i think that one thing that plays a role here is the bigness right because uh-huh. when they were small startups and they didn't have the impact they have today on the world it wasn't such a big of a deal i mean the stories we have today that are big societal problems is because of how big and their scale right yeah so you couldn't anticipate it it's like the unintended consequences that all the companies are dealing with now, it came to bite them now. Um, but also, if you ask the journalists, it will, they will tell you it's a profound lack of foresight. I mean, they were blind with all right. their optimism. And this blindness is now uh, <laughs> what's, you know, fighting back because we journalists were raising the alarm. We were alarmists. We said um, those are problems that you need to deal with, and they didn't. So it's the company's fault. For not listening to us, <laughs> right? Um, what, what what is your take on the? I mean, you mentioned that I I brought this up in the interview that I did. Um, you know, saying that th- these are sort of big societal problems. We re- we recently had on the podcast um, <clears throat> Heather Burns from from the UK talking about um, how there are all of these examples of you know, basically government failures, failures around social safety nets or mental health or, or criminal justice um, that are now playing out on social media. And then the tech companies are getting blamed for it. Um, and I think that's a really, really interesting area to explore, but also kind of highlights how all of these things are interconnected. And you can't necessarily just narrow in on one aspect of the world and say, you know, this, you know, this, uh, you know, evidence of, of badness is, is entirely because of the, the tech companies or how big they are. What's, what's your take on that? Do you think that that, that is an accurate depiction of things? Or do you think that, 
um, that that there is more that you can can be focused on one particular area, like that the tech company should have done more. So it always comes down to the humanity versus technology debate, which is more philosophical. Uh -huh. And I think what the companies are trying to say is, you know, this is humanity. People are doing bad and good things. We have a responsibility to try to, uh, Mike Zuckerberg says that a lot. Um, I'm calling it the amplification narrative. So we want to am mm -hmm. amplify uh, the good and mitigate the bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, and also Sundar Pichai uh, had a great quote in the book saying, um, we are over-reliant on technology as a way to solve everything in humanity. Mm -hmm. And at this moment, moment over-indexing on technology is the source of all human problems too, right? So uh, I guess that um, what Sundar said really touches the point of the book uh, saying, yes, there are real concern, real problems, real harm, uh, damaging thing the companies have done, period. It's, it's like factual. But <laughs> blaming them on the more bigger societal problems and hoping they will fix it is naive because they can't. I mean, right. we want them to fix everything's bad about humanity um, because they're so big, maybe they can't, but they cannot. Um, so we have other social entities that need to be in play here, which is the political field. And, you know, we are in academia and all the other entities should figure out solutions um, together. Yeah. I mean, there is an argument, too, that like, um, and this is, is maybe arguing against what I've said in the past to some extent, but it's worth thinking about, you know, this idea that these are societal problems, but many of these companies sort of launched and 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 grew with the sort of theme and marketing that that they were there to solve societal problems yeah. so you know so maybe it is a little rich for them to then go back and say well you know we're wiping our hands of this this is a societal problem um on the one you know. hand yeah we want to make the world a better place and we are right. your savior and then in the tech lash, they are our threats right <laughs> and the journalist says the problems are of their own making they right. brought us, you know, billions of people being connected together online. And then you see what's happened, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right, um, right. They're amplifying those dark corners of humanity. So it's on them. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, but it's difficult. It's more nuanced yeah. than that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, what it really comes back to and what, what you know, I am g generally, you know, a sort of, uh, optimist about the power of, of innovation and technology to do good, but recognizing that that certainly that there are negative consequences to certain things and trying to to understand them. But you know, the bigger issue to me is always understanding all the the different trade offs and nuances that are involved in all of this. Um, and that's I certainly appreciate that in in the book that you sort of highlight all these different viewpoints and all these different sides. And it's not, you know. Um, I think so many people have just sort of adopted a, this is the narrative <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm going to present everything that just, <laughs> just supports my narrative. Whereas yours is, it's a really, um, you know, good and sort of balanced perspective showing all the different viewpoints and, and all the different perspectives and all of which have some, some element of reality in there sure. and creates this sort of complicated nuanced spectrum that I think is really important and useful to understand. Uh, yeah, it's what I hoped to make in this uh, <laughs> very long debate in the book. But, you know, we have contradictory arguments about everything, about all the problems and the resolutions. So I didn't make it up. It's just there, right? Because <laughs> even like look at content moderation, you're dealing with that a lot in, on your show and, and 
blog. So just handling speech. We can't even agree what the right thing is, right? So how it look like. Um, and when you can't agree on the, you know, the solutions, um, you know, it's complicated. And this is why I'm glad it's my research product. It's not, not a boring day. Everything's so <laughs> like a roller coaster. Uh, everybody's pushing to other directions. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything that, that you had uh, when you, I mean, you mentioned before that, you know, the, the research project changed over time as you started to look at the data. Was there, was there anything um, that that really that you expected to include in the book and, and didn't or that you didn't expect to include in the book and then did at the end that 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 really took you by surprise as opposed to like the, the overarching narrative aspect of it you know were there were there smaller things that that took you by surprise the pandemic <laughs> <laughs> uh, took all of us by surprise so the thing is that I wrote most of the you know the analysis and everything and the interviews were prior to the pandemic. So I interviewed you and all the others mainly in February, uh -huh. like really close to the, when the outbreak started. And looking back at those quotes in the pandemic was this huge uh, reckoning for me. And then I added, right, just before it went to production, this uh, chapter, the tech lashes shorters pause. COVID-19 <laughs> and tech deserves a second honeymoon phase. And I'm describing there this very, very, very short period, a few weeks of really gratitude for big tech companies and how their inventions help us. But then, you know, it was way better and way worse at the same time. We all used the products and we're very thankful for their existence. But at the same time, just realized their immense power. And then all the other tech issues just resurfaced as I said, right. very quickly. So the coronavirus did not kill the tech lash and the narrative survived the virus and, you know, is here to stay. So it was interesting to me to see another, this small pendulum swing during the pandemic while I wrote the book. And then we, of course, went back from savers to threats and, you know, those swings always end up in the threat to society section, I think. Yeah. Well, do, do you see a, a point at which the pendulum might swing back in the other direction for real? No. <laughs> That's it. You think it's 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 stuck on on this for a long time, at least. Yeah, because I mean, when you do investigative journalism, you find harm and you have real impact uh, in the world that does make the world a better place because you highlight those things and the companies do spend more time thinking about the unintended consequences and putting safeguards. So for journalists, it's the system working. We're actually doing what we should so they're not going back to being cheerleaders of course not right that's right. not coming back and that's good i mean we need yeah. the media to do that the only thing that i think is um it goes back to well, throughout the book is that if tech is ruining everything narrative is, <laughs> is here to stay that the exaggeration uh is backlashed in the industry as you said and is not really helpful so you, right. you should do your investigative work, of course. But as we said, saying Jack Dorsey is evil because he's thinking about the centralized internet, that's like too much. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, I kind of wonder, to some extent, like, you know, we're reaching a point more and more where everything is technology, right? Every company is a technology in, in some sense or some way. Um, and And then, you know, I wonder if like the tech lash descriptor becomes um you know somewhat obsolete when you're when you're talking about every company as a technology company um then then it it becomes a, a different issue and sort of 
the the tech part of it kind of fades to the background and and yeah you know there's always going to be some sort of backlash against the biggest companies that's yes. just sort of the nature of mm-hmm. how all of this always works i mean i can't think of a big company that is universally loved <laughs> you know they're, they're mostly generally hated just for in part because of their bigness um mm-hmm. and and you know and and how much control they have over whatever aspect of life that they're they're involved in um but i do wonder if if it will shift in that direction where um you know the tech part of it and people people won't even talk about the tech industry as sort of a separate industry anymore but i i don't know well i have a few thoughts on that first yes uh the big tech companies are the most backlashed social media is the sector that's getting the most uh backlash and of course facebook is the most backlashed right. company we can agree on that um i think that yeah if you're a cool new startup <clears throat> and have something new uh that sounds not harmful at start it's got to be covered as good i mean we still have those we look at this new cool thing when those are um things coming from small companies because you want to uh, encourage innovation actually you know the right. stop at all innovation it's those big companies that are under fire right uh, because as you said they're bigness and uh so that's one thing the other thing is that um everything became so Uh, politicized <laughs> mm-hmm. that um, I think those companies are dealing with political issues then it's not going to leave them alone but if again you're doing an autonomous car uh, you s- first we're going to say that it could be cool then we'll say it's scary it can kill people of course it goes through those cycles but then it will be this new thing that we want to explore right because it's new and it's far away in the future going to be something we'll see on on the road, right? So you still have those uh, specific things that are uh, dealt with differently in the media. Mm-hmm. And we still have product launches and uh, hands-on review about the new iPhone. I mean, we still have everything. What I'm saying is just the balance of um, the topics and the framing is different from the past. Right, right. Oh, and, and yeah, I think that's, that's fair and And, and make sense um, so uh, anyways uh, thanks so much for for taking the time and uh, and joining us on the podcast and for, for writing the book it's a really interesting book as I said it's it's super readable um, and and really enjoyable and does present a whole bunch of different perspectives and, and views um, and it's you know it's it's a really good book it, it's uh, it, it is technically coming out on you said March 24th I think is yes that? it's available for pre-order and March 24th will be the release date cool and and um and the exact title of it is it just the tech clash or there's like a subhead yeah too, the right? tech clash and tech crisis communication there we go so uh check it out i think people will really enjoy it and uh thanks again for taking the time to talk on the podcast and thanks to everyone for listening and we'll be back next week yeah.